Hey, everybody. Welcome to another amazing episode here, the John Riley Project, episode number 59. It's Wednesday, June 26, 2019. It's a beautiful day here in Poway, California, the city and the country. This is where we always broadcast from. So much going on here in Poway as well in, as our region and in our nation. And we're going to talk about a national issue today. It's debate night. It, we're going to break it down. We're going to have our full preview of the Democratic presidential debates. Those are starting tonight. They're, we're going to see 10 candidates on the stage tonight, another 10 tomorrow. I'm going to share my thoughts on a number of the candidates and tell you a little bit about what I'm looking for and some of my expectations. And, and we're going to have some fun with it as we kind of go through the whole process. So, um, you know, before we get into that, though, I, I just want to let you know what's going on in my world. Um, over the weekend, I had the great pleasure of attending an event here in Poway that was put on by our interfaith community. Uh, this is the organization that brings all the different religions and churches in our community together, where they work on, you know, um, on common values. They cooperate on a variety of issues. And this this particular event was titled Religion and Ecology ancient wisdom and modern application. And it was fascinating. You know, so I, I originally went there um, to meet with um, Reverend Alpert, who is the one of the two main people behind the interfaith organization here in Poway. And we're hoping to have her and, and part of her team here on the John Riley Project later in July. Uh, so it was a chance for us. We got a chance to meet and, and she'll be joining us as a guest. But I wanted to get a chance to meet her personally, but also just to observe some of the things that their 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 organization works on. And this event was was magnificent. Um, you know, there were representatives there from it must have been about six or seven different faiths. I mean, there were. Let me kind of break it down if I can remember the speaker list. There was a person that was Native American, um, someone from the Baha'i faith, um, Mu- Muslim, Hindu, um, Sikh. Um, uh, Judaism and Christian, and that's seven. I'm not sure if I'm leaving anybody out, but um, there were seven people that got up and spoke about ways to, um, you know, address the environment. How do we manage our environment? It's all about ecology. And you know what was incredible? Is, you know, you hear the stories about all these religions and religious wars and people having hate groups against religions and all this strife. But when you actually meet the people, quality people, every single one of them. And you know what? They all have very, very common core values, very common principles. So when you you, you heard from every speaker, I, I heard the term Mother Earth referenced many times. I heard the, the notion of service, service to community, but also service to the planet being used. And their their approach, each of these speakers was approaching the environmentalism, but more from a religious perspective, which is a little bit different. It's not normally what we hear in the media today when people are talking about climate change and, and everything related to that. Um, but it was neat. It was special to see that there was a common thread that joined all of these religions. And you look at the people, and in some cases, the people looked a little different than, let's just say, a traditional American. Some were dressed in their, um, you know, kind of religious or, or cultural clothing. Um, there were 
songs that were sung and poems and and, and this this event went for about two hours. Um, and again, you know, if, if you just observe it at the surface level, everybody looks very different. But when you listen and you observe and you witness, you realize that we have so much in common, that the differences are the exceptions. Where, where we have um, commonality is the vast majority of, of the issues. You know, when we, we talk about building community and raising families and taking care of our environment around us. So it was just a beautiful event. And what's interesting for me, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic. And heck, I was an altar boy when I was a little boy, I went to parochial school. As I've gotten to be an adult, you know, I'm, I, I don't really consider myself very religious, but a lot of those um, religious teachings are, are kind of still built into me, built into my DNA to a degree. So I have an understanding, a, a respect, um, but it was just really cool just to experience that. So I just thought, I thought, I thought I'd share that with you. Um, the other interesting angle is, you know, when you hear, you turn on the media and people are talking about climate change and there you, you hear people talking about it from a political perspective. And it's usually about um, mandates and government action and control of other people. Uh, but at this event, it was very different. It was more about individuals taking action themselves, people looking to change the way they live, people choosing to live according to their values. So rather than a heavy hand telling other people how to manage their planet, instead it was, what can we each do to make our own world better? And I thought that was wonderful. Um, and so, again, just a great event. I can't go on and on about it. Um, the, the other great issue was yesterday. Here in the John Riley Project podcast studio, we had Jessica Johnson join us. And let me tell you, we had an amazing conversation. Um, Jessica, of course, is the uh, creator of Hidden San Diego. You can find her website, hiddensandiego.net. She actually has categorized and, and written uh, stories and taken photos of all these really little special places in San Diego County, hidden waterfalls, old gold mines, um, tunnels and caves underneath Scripps Ranch. Um, we, we talked about um, haunted houses and, an, and a supernatural experience that she had. Um, we talked about things here in the Poway Rancho Bernardo community. A lot of it was just Amazing. And I have been on our website a number of times over the years, and I've always enjoyed checking out some of her work. Um, but she just came out with a new book called Abandoned San Diego, where she took really just a subset of her website and actually published it in in, in paperback form. And it was already the number seven book, according to Amazon.com, in the travel and photography category. So a great success for her as an entrepreneur, but just a really fascinating person. Um, you know, her higher purpose in, in doing this is really to help people kind of break out of their, of their world and enjoy, you know, finding that um, inner child, 
finding those opportunities where you can explore and play and have adventures. And so she brings people awareness of all of these special places in San Diego. And she talked about abandoned castles in Escondido. And and we talked about, um, oh, geez, a whole series of, of uh, really interesting spots in the county. But she has also created another website called Hidden California, where she does the same thing. So, you know, you, you go to a typical website, like things to do in a particular city, you'll get your typical tripadvisor.com and they'll have their top 10, you know, tourist attractions. Her list is very different. Her list is off the beaten path. Her list is about real culture, real history, and it's really special. Um, So here, I guess... During my podcast, I mean, my alarm just went off on my tablet, which is where I keep my notes. During my podcast with her, she said that when you talk about the supernatural, that's when they typically appear and they usually communicate through electricity. And as I was doing that, a little bell went off on my tablet. So <laughs> am, I, am I having a supernatural moment now? I don't know. But um, it, was, it was great. It was a really wonderful conversation. Um, and you know, the other interesting thing, and, and you know, I just posted that, uh, podcast up on my YouTube channel. I also po- posted it on, um, across all the audio only platforms like Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, um, listen live. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them, but it's interesting. I talk to people about the podcast and some people only think of it as a visual. They think of it as a YouTube and that's all they know. And there are other people that are the opposite. They just know it in iTunes or in Stitcher, and they just listen to the audio version on their on their mobile phone or when they're driving in their car. And they don't know that there's a visual version that's on YouTube. So it, I, I'm sharing that just to let you know that there are multiple ways you can access this podcast, but it is kind of fun and interesting that some people are unaware of all the other channels and ways to access it. So I just thought I'd put that out there. Um, but, you know, speaking of that, may, please follow me on social media, um, you know, John Raleigh Project on Facebook. I have that special insiders group uh, on Facebook. It's a closed group. If you request permission, I'll let you in. You just got to answer a couple of questions. It's the John Riley Project insiders group. And there I have a lot of bonus material when I'm out on the road. Um, I just did a, an, an episode. Um, what was it? Two days ago. It was on Monday. I was out at Harbor Island in, right by the San Diego Bay talking about my 15 year anniversary as a self-employed person and what it means to me. And let's um, just a little eight minute snippet. Uh, so I encourage you to check that out. I've got a whole series of them out there and I'm still trying to keep producing content uh, for those of you that enjoy following this podcast. So yeah, that's a John Riley Project Insiders Group. It's a special Facebook group, bonus content, and uh, just join me there as well. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter, on um, Instagram. I'm um, going to try to start branching out into some other social media platforms. Might start uh, dabbling in LinkedIn. Um, that's LinkedIn is one. I don't know if you use LinkedIn a lot. I signed up for it a long time ago. And every once in a while, I'll poke my nose in there and look around. But I've never really consistently used it. I know it's used for business purposes, but... A lot of times we're inter- interviewing entrepreneurs and authors and other business people thinks it's, it would be appropriate in LinkedIn. So I may be using that platform as well. And, and there's, some, there's some more platforms that we can talk about, but I'm trying to grow the audience, grow the awareness through social media. So I invite you to join me there. 
like the pages, subscribe on YouTube, subscribe on iTunes, um, follow on Facebook, you know, like on Twitter, all of those things. If, as we build the audience, as a number of likes and follows and subscribers grows, that builds the, you know, kind of the credibility of the podcast. It helps me and it ultimately helps you because it creates more momentum and we'll be producing more content and the word will spread better. So, um, for those of you that are following me on social media, thank you. And for everyone else, I, I invite you to join us there. Um, all right. So let's talk about the Democratic presidential debates. That's tonight. I mean, so I got to get this thing post-production and get it in the can here and upload it to the Internet real quick. So it, it's available before the uh, debates start, which I think will be in about five hours. Um, but I, I love political debates. And, and for me... I, you know, I'm a big sports fan, but I'm also a fan of politics. And to me, politics and sports, they're very similar, right? Where there's there, you have one team and there's another team and the teams battle and there are heroes and there are villains and there are scoreboards and there's drama and, um, you know, there are underdogs and heavy favorites and and people will face off and people get into their their teams and, you know, like Yankee fans and Red Sox fans, you know, you got Bernie fans and Trump fans and you got all these different fans jostling. So just the drama around it to me is really fun. And, and people do a lot of creative things online. You know, they have um, drinking games related to the debates, which is funny. Um, I'm going to try to live live uh, tweet tonight's debate. So if you want to follow that, you know, visit me at John Riley Poway on Twitter and I'll share my thoughts. But um yeah, I mean, it's always interesting to see in these debates, you know, who is calm under pressure, you know, who is um, gets kind of out of their sorts. And I think we saw uh, Marco Rubio suffer that in the 2016 debates where he, you know, f- too tightly followed his script and he looked like a like a robot. And so are some of those candidates going to be able to handle the pressure? Um, who's going to be prepared? I'm sure they're all in heavy prep going into this, but are they going to be able to deliver when they're on stage? And in my opinion, who's going to be the most likable? Uh, that's critical um, because it can't just be about, you know, policies, you know, really understanding the bullet points of your policy. You have to be likable. You have to be relatable. You know, I, I've, I've talked about when I ran for office in 2014 for Poway School Board, um, you know, I had a, in my opinion, a, a very good bulleted list of policies. And I spoke a lot about those policies. What I think I failed to do now in retrospect is being more relatable, uh, being more personable. Um, and I think we need to see that from some of these candidates at the debate tonight. So that'll be interesting. And then really, you know, I'm, I'm a marketing guy. So I think in terms of Who's going to have the strongest brand? You know, what's their message? What what is the the things that you're going to remember them for? Um, you know, and some of these candidates have already defined brands. I think Andrew Yang has done a good job of that. I think Bernie has a very good brand. I think uh, Elizabeth Warren has done a good job of that. But there's a lot of other candidates that really haven't developed that. Uh, when you think of that candidate, you're not sure what that candidate represents. And we're going to learn that tonight. Um, but yeah, 20 candidates, two nights. So there'll be 10 tonight and then there'll be 10 again tomorrow night. Um, and it's interesting how the media is managing this process. And this was one of my 
complaints in, in the debates of previous years where the, de- the media was setting the criteria for who could be in the debates. And I think they did that for this one. I think you had have a certain number of donors or a certain dollars of donation or a certain percentage in the poll. They set the bar pretty low, which I'll give them credit for. Um, but I've seen that in the pro- past where they would in some cases, arbitrarily changed the line. And then some candidates who I thought were worthy candidates got bumped off the stage or got bumped to the, the kiddie table debate, or they called it the cocktail party debate. But, you know, the, the, B, the B level debate. And I, I just that always really bothered me uh, because I don't like to see the media, um, I guess, influencing the way the process plays out. But we know they do and they have huge influence on this. And I mean, think about like all the candidates that have been um, that we're going to see in the next two nights. There's 20 of them. But the media has obsessed on a small subset of them and the rest of them we we hardly know. So, again, the media and and how they manipulate the system is something that I'm always very suspect of, suspicious of. Um, So let's keep an eye on how that plays out. But ultimately, it's this is a healthy process. The Democratic Party, in many ways, is having. You know, I'm, I'm going to say it, a civil war in a lot of ways. You've got um, on one side, you got the progressives um, that are really pushing for um, more of the democratic socialism and more progressive policies. And then you have the other candidates that some will call corporate candidates, some call them pragmatic, some call them moderate, um, that are looking for, let's just say, less radical solutions. Um, but then some people think that the status quo is radical, <laughs> you know, so it's all depends on your perspective. But in the end, I think this is a healthy process. Um, but, you know, let's be real tonight. We're, we're just going to get sound bites. Some people have likened the, this debate. It's going to be like speed dating. Not, not that I've ever done that. I've, I've seen it on TV. But, you know, you, you, you talk to a person and it's a couple of minutes and boom, you're on to the next. I mean, think about it. There's going to be 10 candidates and there's going to be two hours for this event. So, that's 120 minutes. That's 12 minutes a candidate. But that doesn't count commercials. That doesn't count the moderator asking questions. I don't know if they're going to have guest questions from the audience or from a video. Um, so, you know, when you pay, pair that down, I mean, these these candidates are going to be lucky to get seven or eight minutes. Um, so what are they going to be able to deliver in that short amount of time that's memorable, that shows that they're likable, that shows that they have leadership qualities um, and shows that they can stay on their game and not get rattled. It's going to be really interesting. But I will just a little bit of a tangent. This is one of the things that I I thought was wonderful that what we did when we started this podcast, the John Riley Project, in September of last year, we invited our political candidates here locally for school board, for city council, for mayor, to have long form interviews, sit down interviews where we covered a wide range of issues. On average, we were going about an hour and a half per candidate, learning their backstory and why they're running, more about their family and the hot button issues that really fire them up and and about their personal life. And it was wonderful. I mean, we had one, well, we've had two candidates so far that have gone over three hours, Chris Olps and John Carson. Those are fabulous. So I, I'm hoping we're going to see more of that. And I, I did, I talked about this before. I saw Andrew Yang do a two hour sit down interview on the Rubin report, which by the way, was fantastic. Um, I invite you to check that out. So, um, 
hoping we're going to see more of these long form interviews where we can, because this debate, I mean, is just it's saying it's the tip of the iceberg is not even doing that justice. It's the tippity top of the iceberg that we're going to actually see tonight. But it's the kind of event that gets huge exposure. A lot of Americans are going to be learning about some of these candidates for the first time. Um, so it'll be important that these candidates are on their game and they come and they're ready to deliver. But because this is their first exposure to so many new voters, that's why likability and branding are going to be so important. Um, but, you know, you look at this list of candidates. And again, I'm going to go through the list and just share a few top of mind thoughts on each candidate. Um some of these are national figures. You know, we've known about them for a long time, like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Um, others, we've just recently learned about them, like Mayor Pete Buttigieg and and um, and others have been on the scene, but maybe not as high profile people like Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar. Um, but there's a lot of other candidates. I mean, let's be real. Some of these candidates, I don't think realistically, even they would in, in their own honest sense in those quiet personal moments, they realize that they're not going to win. I mean, one of the candidates that's on stage is Oprah Winfrey's spiritual advisor. <laughs> so um, how some of these candidates are really trying to, to use this as a platform to build their national profile. I have no problem with that. Um, I root for you to do that. And if you catch fire, hey, something special could happen. Um, but we know that's the case with a lot of these candidates, and we'll see that tonight during the debates. Um, but yeah, a few top of mind thoughts on each candidate. But you know, before I do, I, I want to just give you full disclosure because I, I'm like for myself, I'm a registered no party preference, um, so I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. And so I'm going to share with you my thoughts and ideas, but I want to let you know where I come from, the angle that I approach this from, because um, we all have biases. Let's be real. I have a bias. You have a bias. They have a bias. And so I want to at least frame to you where I come from. So actually, when I first started voting in the 80s, I was a Democrat. My first presidential election was 84. I voted for Walter Mondale in 1984. That was the year that Reagan won 49 of the 50 states. And then in 88, I voted for Dukakis. Um, and I was obviously on the losing side of both of those. And, and then every presidential election since then, I have either voted for a third party candidate or for a write-in, because I was never satisfied with the candidates that the Republicans and Democrats have put forward in the general election. Um, so I, I ha and some people say I'm crazy for doing that. Like, oh, you're wasting your vote. Um, and I've always believed that when you vote, you should vote based on your own personal values. You should vote for the candidate that best represents you. It doesn't matter if the candidate has a good chance or a bad chance of winning, because let's be realistic, is your one vote going to swing the whole state in one direction or another? We live here in California. I mean, it's a stone cold lock that whoever wins the Democratic nomination is going to get all the electoral colleges for Cal from California. So I never really feel like I need to compromise how I vote. I don't need to compromise my principles. I simply vote for the candidate that is most aligned with my point of view. And I feel really good when I do that. I don't feel like I've had to, um, you know, kind of take a big gulp and then just vote for the lesser of evils. Um, and I would encourage you to follow that path. I know some people don't agree with that. Um, but uh, 
that's kind of how I approach it. So I'm, I'm more of a liberty-minded guy. So um, I'm a, some people have called me libertarian. Some people have said I'm for individual rights. Some people say I'm fiscally conservative, socially liberal, socially tolerant. There's a whole bunch of ways people have tried to frame me or I've tried to frame myself. Ultimately, I, I think of myself as independent. I think of myself as a believer of individual rights. That's why this podcast, I talk about it being for the inalienable rights of life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And those are our individual rights that, in my opinion, they're inalienable. They cannot be taken away. Um, so that's kind of my approach to this. And I'll, you'll see that in my commentary as I go through these. So we'll go in alphabetic order of the 20 that'll be on the stage. The first is Michael Bennett, a senator from Colorado. He worked for Bill Clinton. He's the former superintendent of the Denver schools. So I've had some experience with superintendents of schools. The one we had here in Poway uh, stole $350,000 of, of money from taxpayers, was found uh, you know, guilty in a court of law and, and lost his, his uh, credentials. Um, We've had some interesting drama here with our superintendent, but he was the superintendent, Michael Bennett, the superintendent of schools in Denver. He's a moderate. He's big on education reform, economic opportunity. But let's be real. Michael Bennett, who um, I, I, I hear from if you're from Colorado, hey, you probably know him well. But on the national stage, we know very little about him. So maybe is he one of the guys we're going to hear more about during these debates? Let's find out. Um then in second in alphabetic order is Joe Biden, a seven-term senator from Delaware. I mean, think about that. It, a senator is a six-year term. Seven terms? It's 42 years. Now, maybe his last term as a senator, he didn't go the full distance because he became vice president. But still, like 42 years in Washington, D.C., plus eight more years as vice president of the United States. That's incredible. Um, I know he was first elected when he was in his 20s. Um, but that, that's amazing. Um, but, you know, he, Biden was the um, one of the proponents of the 1994 crime bill, which, in my opinion, was a disgrace, um, which is this is why we have such a massive incarceration state with, and, and it's ramped up, you know, this crazy war on drugs. And we have just an incredibly high proportion of Americans in prison now, especially compared to a lot of other countries. And it's created all kinds of problems, the whole criminal justice system and the police that are putting people in jail. Uh, I think we've gone too far. Um, obviously, there's a place for this, for criminal justice and, and rule of law. But I think that omnibus bill for the crime bill of 94 was one of numerous laws that went too far. And that was kind of the vibe that was going on in the 90s, because you remember that was in, in California. That was when they they passed the three strikes, you're out bill. And that's when, heck, in the early 90s, there was a lot of um, laws that were passed against. Actually, there were propositions that were passed against um, illegal immigrants that were later overturned uh, by the overturned by the. Supreme Court, or maybe it was the state Supreme Court. But at any rate, that was like a big law and order era, even for Democrats. Um, but in many ways, we're living with a lot of those policies today in 2019 that I don't think are healthy. Um, and then, of course, Biden, you know, he gets a lot of credit for being, um, you know, a, a, a wise man on foreign policy. And he was a good confidant for for President Obama to give him that foreign policy background that maybe uh, Barack Obama didn't have when he ran. But Joe Biden voted for the Iraq war. Uh, and, and it wasn't the fact he just voted for the Iraq war, but he also 
gave up the right to declare war in Congress. Instead, what he did is he just turned over the authority to President Bush. And we everyone knew President Bush wanted to go to war in Iraq. Um, but he gave up his authority to make that choice. And again, I think he knew he was going to be a presidential candidate in 04 or in 08. And he was in 08. And he didn't want to appear weak on terrorism. And so that's why you saw Biden, John Edwards, Hillary Clinton, all voting for the Iraq war bill. And that turned out to be a disaster. Um, so um, and then but he's still he's Uncle Joe, lovable Joe. He's always got the gaffes and people love him for it. But some of his gaffes have been, in my opinion, racist. Um, you know, if you look up the one he did about um, 7-Eleven um, and making uh, racial remarks about uh, people from India. Um, and, you know, there, he just got in a little bit of heat recently um, talking about racial issues. Uh, and it was interesting because he had talked about um, when he was a senator that he would work across the aisle. You know, he was a bipartisan guy. And he said, sometimes you have to work with people that you don't like. And, you know, back you know, we roll the clock backwards and there are a lot more, let's just say, more vile, unlikable senators, maybe those that um, that really embraced more racist policies. And he was talking about how he worked with them. It was an example of showing bipartisanship, but it was also an example of him being out of touch in 2019 because he didn't really understand the sensitivity today on those issues that maybe wasn't as hot of an issue back when he was a senator in the 80s or 90s. Um, and he got a little bit of heat for that. But what was interesting is that his his numbers didn't change much. He's doing very well with, um, with older Democrats. He's doing because he's looked upon as trustworthy. He's a known commodity, a former vice president. He's also doing well with African-Americans. And I think that's because he was President Obama's vice president. Um, but still, he makes these gaffes. The funniest gaffe of all I talked about on our previous podcast is it was in 08 or 2012. He said, Barack Obama has a plan for the economy and it's three letters, J-O-B-S. Jobs. <laughs> and so that's another great clip. Look up Biden jobs, three letters on uh, YouTube or on Google, and you'll find that clip. And it's fantastic. So he's he's a gaffe machine. So that's again, what are we going to see on the debate stage? Are we going to get the uh, the likable, friendly Uncle Joe? Are we going to be the tough minded presidential Joe? Um, are we going to hear or see some gaffes? Probably not gaffes. I think he's going to be pretty well prepared. Um, but anyways, that's enough of Joe Biden. Oh, the other interesting thing about Joe Biden is he is the symbol of part of this civil war in the Democratic Party. It's interesting as I have a lot of friends um, that I know in person as well as on social media that are really hardcore progressives that are big fans of um, of Elizabeth Warren and of Bernie Sanders and even of uh, Pete Buttigieg. Um, but they really do not like Joe Biden. Um, they think of him as just like the, the Republicans. And, and to a large degree, they're right. I think if you look at a lot of the, the so-called moderate Democrats, they're very, very similar to the moderate Republicans. You go down the list of the issues, they're going to be largely in agreement. There might be a difference in degree, but not in kind. Um, and so it's interesting to see how this process plays out. Are we going to get the more establishment Democrat? Are we going to get the more 
progressive Democrat that's going to emerge from this nomination cycle? And then which of those two is the right category to go up against President Trump? Uh, so this is fascinating how this is going to play out. Uh, the next in the uh, the list, um, and these other ones I'll go much more quickly. Biden, I, there's a lot to say. Um, Cory Booker, uh, senator from New Jersey, the former mayor of New York, and he's an uplifting guy, wants to bring Americans together. Um, so he's a likable guy, and he's done some good things. And But, you know, is there any substance there? Um, we're going to find that out tonight. Um, Steve Bullock is another guy that's running. I bring him up. He's not going to be on the stage, but he's the mayor of Montana. And I'm surprised that he didn't make the cut. Um, the reason I, I want to bring him up, and this is mostly just for fun, is his name is Steve Bullock. And I told you this show that I've been streaming on uh, Prime Video is um, Deadwood. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a great show. And the sheriff in Deadwood is a guy named Seth Bullock. And these characters in Deadwood, a lot of them lived in real life. And there was a Seth Bullock in real life from Deadwood. So I wonder, and he was originally from Montana in the show. So I wonder if there's a relationship between Governor Seth Bull, excuse me, Governor Steve Bullock of Montana and the Sheriff Seth Bullock from Deadwood fame. Who knows? Um, hopefully we'll get to find that out at some point. But he's a kind of a guy that he wants. To, he's a Democrat in a Western state, in a mountain state. So he, I think he is hoping to be a Democrat that can speak to red state voters. I think that's a reasonable uh, position, but he, he didn't earn enough of the, um, the criteria to, to make the cut for tonight. He's the only one I'll comment on that didn't make the cut. All right, who's next? Uh, Pete Buttigieg. Again, we're going in alphabetic order. Um, Mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He's young. He's a Harvard graduate, a Rhodes Scholar. He's an Afghan war veteran. Um, he's openly gay, and, and he um, his, his uh, spouse is frequently up with, with him on stage. And he's a very interesting guy. When I first saw him and listened to him, I really was impressed. He's thoughtful. He's smart. Um, he's in many ways relatable. You just got a sense that he kind of had his act together and he was so young. I mean, he's like 37, I think, maybe 38. Um, so I thought of him as really kind of a, a really good guy. Uh, he just got into some hot water, though, recently. And it, I don't know, did he get in hot water or is it the victim of circumstances? So he's the mayor of South Bend. There was um, a a police shooting of a black man in South Bend. And I guess there have been a number of racial incidents like this with the police over time. And this is one where I guess there was a, uh, a black, the way that I heard the story, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, that it was a black man that was trying to break into a car. Um, a, pol- a police officer approached him. The, the man pulled a knife or he had a knife in his hand. I don't know if he was ready to attack with it, but there was a knife and then the police officer shot him. Um, And it was used as another example of um, Black Lives Matter, another example of um, police brutality. And as the mayor of the city, you know, he he is in charge of, he sees over the chief of police. What are you going to do about it? And how come you haven't fixed this? And the people, a lot of, um, a lot of black uh, adults, black family members, you know, b- black uh, parents were outraged. I heard and saw a lot of this. And, he, you know, Buttigieg, as the mayor, really needs to take control of the situation while still being empathetic uh, as he goes through the process. Because, you know, on one side, the you, know, you got the whole law and order thing and, you know, you don't ever want to go 
well, I'm going to say some people think you don't ever want to go up against the police uh, because the police deserve our respect and you can't back down on supporting the police. Um, but then on the other hand, you have there are bad cops and there are cops that make mistakes and there are cops that are evil and cops that will shoot when they shouldn't shoot at all. And so whichever side he picks to support, he's going to end up upsetting the other side. Um, but as a leader, he needs to take a stand. And so I've been seeing an interview. I saw an interview of him this morning on MSNBC. And you can tell he's thoughtful. He's listening. He's trying to manage the process. I guess he's asked for an investigation. In my opinion, what should be done is that police officer should either be put on immediate administrative leave. If any discovery of acting out of hand is is um, is found, he should be immediately fired because um, I think there's a lot of cases where – and this goes back to my comments on the incarceration state – that there, there are too many laws. There's too much aggression by some some police officers and it's creating a lot of strife in these communities where some people, you know, it, it becomes a battle when they're just engaged in a traffic stop. They're, they're fearful for their lives. It shouldn't be this way. Um, so um, I'm hopeful that what he is going to do is, of course, do the full investigation. But I would be leaning more towards supporting of um, innocent people or even proportional response by police. So if a person has a knife, you don't shoot to kill them. Um, if a person has a knife, you find a way to disengage that person from the knife. Um, you find ways to handle it properly. The other interesting part of this, and I think this is something that he has talked about, which I think is a wise idea, is having more racial diversity within the police force itself. Um, so it so these police actions are not perceived through a racial lens, or at least to a lesser degree. Um, so it doesn't always appear like a white cop and a black victim or a black cop and a white victim. Um, and I'm hopeful that those are policies we're going to begin to see, not just in South Bend, but in all other parts of the country. Um, but even that, to a degree, only helps so much. I think in, even in Ferguson, Missouri, you know, the police force there was largely African-American. So um, at any rate, interesting to see what happens to Mayor Pete. Is this was this event going to take him down? And I think we're starting to see that in the media, you know, where he's getting the attack. You know, he was the darling for a while, um, but now things are shifting towards Elizabeth Warren. And so it, will Mayor Pete be able to recapture some of that energy and electricity that really lit up a lot of people when he first came onto the scene? We're going to find out. Um, who's next? Julian Castro, or who, excuse me, Julian Castro. Uh, former mayor of New York, of San Antonio, uh, HUD secretary, I think, under President Obama. Um, again, a guy with great credentials, but not getting a lot of play in the media. Um, haven't heard much about his policies. I know a little bit because he is Hispanic. He's talking about immigration, especially as a Texas mayor. That's a relevant topic to talk about. But he, there's no, you know, again, we talk about what's your brand identity. We're not seeing anything from from Castro on that. Let's find out what happens in these debates. Um, Bill de Blasio, the, the mayor of New York City, this guy, um, I can't believe he even got enough support to be on the stage. It seemed like when he announced his candidacy, there was just silence. Um, and he's a he's a hardcore progressive and he's you know pushing for 
living wage and pushing against economic inequality and for universal pre-K. But really, I mean, there's a lot of candidates are in that progressive lane. Is Bill de Blasio the best of those? I don't think so. Um, So again, what's his angle? Is he, did he make a promise to himself he was going to run for president or is he, does he think he has a viable chance or is he really just setting the stage for 2024 or 2028? Who knows? I don't know what their strategies are. Uh, the next guy, John Delaney. And immediately I'm like, who is John Delaney? And so last night I did a little um, search on him and I found a um, an episode of, of The View where he was interviewed, you know, by um, uh, Whoopi Goldberg and um, Joy Behar and, and John McCain's daughter uh, was there. And there's a few other new hosts that I don't know. Um, and it was interesting. He's a very likable guy. I mean, John Delaney, he's a... Um, He's a former congressman from Maryland. He's an entrepreneur. He took over his family's business. Um, but he's, he supports working class families. He's a very pragmatic, solutions, problem solver kind of guy. He's, um, he says he's not going to take any PAC money from corporations. He wants to focus on the future. But I look at him and I think this is a guy that he's likable, but you know, there's n- the, the brand image, there's nothing there. He's just kind of very generic. And I just look at him, I think, God, if he ended up being the nominee, which I know he won't, but imagine him up on a stage with Trump. I mean, Trump would just steamroll the guy. So, um, but he's just, he's nice. He's a nice man. Um, so that's John Delaney. Then Tulsi Gabbard. This is another one. Uh, some of my uh, more liberty-minded friends have have identified with Tulsi Gabbard, thinking she was one of the better Dem candidates, Democratic candidates, because she's so fiercely anti-war. You know, um, she is a former congressman. Uh, she's an Iraq War veteran. Um, but this notion of being anti-war is a big part of her message, which I like. Um, I think we're involved in way too much um, military adventurism around the world. Um, but you know, she's made some mistakes in the past. She's made comments opposing gay rights. And, you know, that's not going to play well in the Democratic, um, the Democratic nomination process. So, you know, she's one of the candidates will probably be near the end of the stage. They're going to line them up where the candidates with the most in the polls will be in the center of the stage. And as you go towards the end, those will be the ones with the lower uh, numbers in the polls. I imagine Tulsi Gabbard will be near the edge. Um, Kirsten Gillibrand, another New York senator and Again, a very likable person. She took over Hillary Clinton's seat when when she ran for president, um, or excuse me, when she went, it became Secretary of State, as when Gillibrand took over that spot. Um, it's interesting. I, I've heard her name being used a lot with Rand Paul, and Rand Paul, before the whole Trump era started, Rand Paul was one of my favorite guys in the Senate. Rand Paul has gone sideways since President Trump was elected, which that's a whole other podcast conversation. But um, I know that Rand Paul has teamed up with, uh, is it Kristen or Kirsten? Excuse me. It's Kirsten Gillibrand. They've teamed up on a number of bipartisan bills. And I think that's great. And like one of them was to end the federal ban on marijuana, which I think makes a ton of sense. I mean, marijuana is... It's not just simply illegal. It's a class one um, narcotic. You're not even allowed to do research on marijuana at the federal level, which is just insane. Um, And so, you know, Rand and Gillibrand got together and they've they've teamed up on a few other bills, which I think is pretty cool. Um, But again, you know, what else is there? What does she stand for? She just seems more of a, 
you know, maybe a moderate Democrat. Maybe she's kind of moving left, which that seems to be trendy these days. Uh, she talks about her experience as a young mom and that there's something there. And there was a senator from the state of Washington that was the, the soccer mom, right? Or the, uh, and that was a kind of an angle. Uh, so I'm not sure what Kirsten Gillibrand and what she's about. We're going to find out. Okay, then there's Kamala Harris. And she is our senator from the state of California, former attorney general, um, a former DA in San Francisco. This woman's a fighter. Um, this woman's tough. Um, she's a prosecutor. Um, and, you know, that's like her slogan is for the people, which is, you know, kind of a, um, how should I say, a good, a good slogan for um, if you're a prosecutor, but also sounds like it's, you know, a very open uh, slogan for embracing the rest of um, I'm off my base here. I can hear my kids in the background. My goodness. You try to record a podcast in your house and it's sometimes a little bit difficult. But anyways, um, Kamala Harris, um, I think is very strong, but I wonder if her angle as a prosecutor, if that's what we really need in the United States. Um, I think we need someone that's going to bring people together. Um, leave the prosecution to other people. Our president doesn't need to be that person. And so that's uh, one of my concerns with Kamala Harris. Um, the next one, John Hickenlooper, Colorado governor, former geologist, former brew pub owner. Right on. Uh, John Hickenlooper, um, former mayor of Denver. It's like another Colorado guy. I think we've got like three guys from Colorado on this list. Um, a moderate. He's a bipartisan guy. He's pushing for climate change, health care. I, I saw him on TV. He seems like a nice guy, but really, I mean, what do we know about him? We don't know much about him at all. Um, next guy, Jay Inslee. He's the governor of Washington. Um, really big on climate change, which is wonderful. And he is a guy with a brand identity. He's a guy that's putting his eggs in the basket of climate change. And so maybe he's trying to educate. Maybe he's really trying to move the needle on that one issue, which no, no harm, no foul. Go for it, man, if that's what your angle is. But he's at least really embracing um, an issue or a collection of issues. That's good. But again, another guy that is in the low single digits and hasn't really gotten traction. Will he rise up in these debates? Amy Klomachar, the senator from Minnesota, a former corporate lawyer, big on bipartisanship and cooperation. Um, she seems like a very tough-minded, very strong candidate, um, but also not very well-known beyond Minnesota. But she gets high rankings from her her electorate in the state of Minnesota. Is she going to rise up and love her campaign and announcement speech when she was in the blizzard with snow everywhere? That was, I mean, it's a great gif. If you ever find that online to use, have a little fun on social media, the gif of Amy Klobuchar in the snow. Um, the 15th candidate on this list, I'm just racing through them. Beto. So Beto O'Rourke, um, the former congressman from El Paso, the uh, the guy that almost unseated Ted Cruz um, as a Democrat, almost winning the Senate race in Texas, which is incredible. Um, it's also indicative of the shifting demographics that we're seeing in Texas. Um, and Beto is interesting. He kind of dragged his feet to get in and he got in and there was a little bit of a burst of energy and then he kind of quickly fell off the scene. Um, he's an interesting guy. He's full of energy. He's excitable. Um, and, um, he's fun to watch. Um, but you know, and his message is very much aligned with a lot of progressive policies. He's very aligned with the younger crowd in the democratic party. Um, but he just hasn't gotten traction. He hasn't caught fire. Like a lot of, a lot of people thought he would. Um, so 
we'll find out. He's definitely one of the younger guys running. He's, it seemed like Mayor Pete, who is also very young, sort of stole his fire, stole his energy um, away from Beto. So will Beto reclaim that now that Mayor Pete is, you know, taking some hits on the terrible, um, uh, you know, police brutality issue that just occurred in South Bend? So we'll see. Next guy is Tim Ryan, former congressman from Ohio, tried to unseat Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House, big on manufacturing and trade policy. Who? Tim Ryan? I don't know who this guy is. So I, I did hear about him when he was trying to provide some sort of a an, a, an opposition or an alternative for the Speaker of the House. And I remember hearing his name in that context. But, you know, again, he's an Ohio guy, so you expect him to be representing a rust state. So it's going to be about trade, about manufacturing, and trying to take that issue back. Because, you know, Trump and the Republicans won Ohio, won many of those states in the Rust Belt. Can um, Tim Ryan help bring those states back to the Democrats? We'll see. Um, then number 17, Bernie Sanders. So, so much to talk about with Bernie. So the, the Vermont senator, the big man on democratic socialism. And the one thing I, I love about Bernie, there's a number of things I like about him. The first thing is, is I, I give him huge, huge respect. He is fiercely consistent. Um, he doesn't change his opinion depending on the polls. He doesn't, you know, go with the flow. He sticks to his principles. And I love that. I greatly respect that in him. I don't agree with his policies. Uh, well, some of them I do, but most of them I don't. But I like the fact that he is so bold and he sticks to his guns. Um, you know, he's big on single payer health care, um, tuition free college. And the latest one that he's been putting out there is now he wants to not just provide tuition free college for people going forward in college. He now wants to go backwards in time and cancel all student debt. And again, it's like it's mind boggling. It's just constantly more free stuff. Um, and I talked about this in the Andrew Yang Universal uh, Basic Income podcast where Every time you want to give people all these things, you've got to take it from somebody else. That's a big problem. Um, but in this case, when you're talking about canceling student debt, now, first of all, college is expensive. College is way the hell too expensive. It's gotten to be more expensive because schools are adding way more administrators. They're building these, you know, Taj Mahal, you know, facilities. I mean, heck, I remember when my kids, we were doing the college tours, every college had this incredible rec center with a rock climbing wall. And I know it seems trivial, a rock climbing wall, but it was representative of how these schools were spending so much money on facilities and staff beyond the scope of education that just keeps adding to the cost and it makes it all the more expensive. Um, so it's too expensive and student loans are not they're typically financed by the government and they are or at least they're guaranteed by the government, but they are non-negotiable. You can't, you know, lower your interest rate. You can't refinance them. Um, and that makes it really tough. And in some cases, I mean, you can't also if you declared bankruptcy, not that I'm encouraging that, but if you declare bankruptcy, you can't um, erase that part of your debt. That debt stays with you even if you're bankrupt, which is nuts. Um Bankruptcy should be bankruptcy. Um, but what what ends up happening is now is that the banks can loan this money out. And then if the if the if the person cannot pay, 
the bank still gets their money and they still get it with interest because it's guaranteed. And the, the debt itself can't be wiped off the books. So the bank is guaranteed to get their money no matter what. So it makes you wonder, this student loan um, system, who is it really created for? Is it created for the bankers or is it created for the student? Um, if the If the bankers were instead giving credit to people with student loans based on their credit worthiness, and that bank had to assume part of that risk, then I think we would see a very different dynamic. We would see less student loans being put out, and some people would be shrieking and saying, oh my goodness, poor people cannot go to college. But what it would do is it would put pressure on colleges to lower their prices. Because right now, there is no real competitive pressure on pricing. Um, nothing substantial, at least. I mean, we see schools that are charging, you know, 60 grand or more a year for tuition, room, and um, and uh, housing and books. Um, so that's insane um, how expensive it has gotten. So that needs to be addressed. And there are a lot of ways we can talk about reducing that. But to wipe the debt off the books, I mean, first of all, you're in doing so, you end up penalizing people that don't go to college. And those might be hardworking blue collar people. They may be poor people, but they all pay taxes, whether it's sales tax or income tax, that all goes into various uh, government budgets that end up funding the education system. And so you end up having people that don't go to college, people that are middle class, lower middle class, even poor that are paying. Um, So other people that are either from wealthy families or they're getting degrees and they will soon become wealthy. Maybe they're getting a degree in engineering, a degree in finance, a degree in um, uh, computer science. And in the future, they will become wealthy. You're subsidizing them and they become wealthy and they end up passing the, the, the bill off to other people that don't go to college. In my opinion, that's not moral. And at the same time, there are other people, and I think about myself, my family and me together funded my way through college. Now, granted, college was a lot less expensive in the 80s, but um, there are people that have saved for college. There are people that have been very disciplined and responsible. And then there are many cases where the child is working through college to cover a great deal of their, of their expenses, and they've busted their butt to get through college. And then they find out, oh, you didn't really need to do that. You could have just assumed the loan and then had it canceled later. And so, again, I think that's not that's not fair, <laughs> besides not being moral. So, I just see this as just another example of Bernie giving more free stuff, and he's obviously going after college because he knows college students are a big part of his base. And if he can bring them out in mass, that'll make a big difference for him. Um, so that's why you hear free college tuition and now canceling student debt. And I'm sure we're going to hear more about this in the debates these next two nights. Um, Next candidate, Eric Swalwell, a congressman from California, and he's from the Bay Area. I was originally lived in the Bay Area. Uh, he's from the, the East Bay, like Fremont, Hayward, Pleasanton, Livermore. I had no idea who this guy was when he announced. Um, but he's a big on gun safety and gun regulations. So he's all he's the gun candidate, or I should say the gun control candidate from a from a branding perspective, that's good. It is a single issue, but it seems to me this is a guy that's trying to build his national profile. So let's see what kind of impact he makes on the stage. Then there's Elizabeth Warren. 
the senator from Massachusetts that helped create the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. She's tough on corporations. She's very progressive. We all know about the Native American controversy with her. Um, in my opinion, Elizabeth Warren is the candidate that I like the least of all of them because I, I'm a big free market guy. I'm a big supporter of entrepreneurism. And a lot of the policies that she puts forward are a direct attack on that concept, those ideas. Um, she wants to break up companies. She wants to forcibly um, reconfigure boards of directors on companies. Um, this is – these companies, this is, these are private entities. And – the government shouldn't be doing this, shouldn't be dictating who sits on a board of a private corporation, in my opinion. Um, the government shouldn't be thinking about ways to break up other corporations. You know, she's talking about wanting to break up Google and Facebook and a lot of their big companies. We should be talking about ways to break up the government, <laughs> not the corporations. And then her whole um, you did not build that speech. I mean, that was something that she came up with and President Obama later embraced it, and he gave a speech on the same concept. That's the angle of when you see a, a business owner and the business owner says, yeah, I built that company. And she says, no, you didn't build that. Those roads you drove on, other people paid for that. Those bridges they the trucks drove over, other people paid for that. The education that those people got uh, in order to work at your business, other people paid for it. Well, that's true, but... That business owner, he paid his share of all of those things. He paid gas taxes that funded the roads, both personally and from a corporation, the gas taxes for those cars, their registration fees, paid the income taxes for that. Um, and then uh, – um, and at the same time, it diminishes – when they say you did not build that, that's also diminishing the – influence and the importance of a strong leader in an organization. And it's interesting. This is the dichotomy of it. So you'll see, you'll see this notion of a Warren attacking business owners, CEOs, and saying, you did not build that and saying, you know, you're, you're just a, uh, a greedy capitalist, a parasite. You really don't offer any value, but at the same time, giving great credit to people like President Obama when he led the nation out of the Great Recession. I think you have to be consistent on this. You have to say that leadership is important. And business leaders like Steve Jobs has done incredible things from an innovative perspective, from a supply chain perspective, from a uh, product development perspective that have literally changed the world. And I think these leaders are very worthy of credit for that. Elizabeth Warren is a direct attack on that notion. Um, and the way that whole Native American controversy, the whole Pocahontas thing is just nuts on multiple levels. Okay, first of all, um, did she have Native American ancestry? Um, when she originally told the stories, I said, yeah, yes, you probably did. You know, I'm researching my ancestry. And, you know, you go back multiple generations and, yeah, people – come from different places. And does she have a Native American blood in her? Yeah, probably. I believed her. Um, and she said that, you know, she had stories that were passed down from her grandparents. It made sense to me. But then people attacked her. They thought she used the uh, Native American um, category um, as her identity. There was accusations that that helped her get the job as a professor at Harvard, that she had used it to her advantage uh, to play the role of a minority. I don't know if that's true or not. It might be. Um, 
But that whole controversy, um, and then Trump saw that whole thing, and Trump and his nicknames. Um, I hate Trump's nicknames, nicknames, but I will agree they are extremely effective. What he's doing, we talk about branding, he is branding the, his opponents before the opponent has a chance to brand themselves. Um, and from a marketing perspective, what Trump was doing there was brilliant. But from a a human perspective, it was awful. Um, and so he framed her as Pocahontas. That inflamed the situation. All the Trump people loved it. The, the Warren people were aghast. Um, and then Warren, which she should have been smart at that point, is just to let it go and to let it go and just focus on the things that she wants to bring forward. But what she did, she went and got the DNA test to prove that she had Native American ancestry, and she did, and it was only one out of 1,024. So it was like less than one-tenth of 1%. And then that just made her look even all the more foolish. Um, So I really wish she would have dropped that, but she went for it. And I guess, you know, there was some ego, some pride involved. But at any rate, Elizabeth Warren will be on the stage on Wednesday, which is tonight. It'll be Warren. And I think who else is going to be on that? Maybe Beto and Corey uh, Booker. And then after that, it's a lot of these other like 1%, 2% candidates. The debate on Thursday is going to be the one with with Bernie and Biden and Buttigieg and and Kamala. That's going to be a good one. But I think tonight, I think Elizabeth Warren, if if she's going to execute this debate the way you hope she would, she should dominate tonight. So let's find out. Um, the, the number 20 on this list is, I remember there's 21, there's 20 total candidates, but I told you it was the one Steve Bullock we talked about that didn't make the stage. So number 20 is Marianne Williamson. This is Oprah Winfrey's spiritual advisor. I am, she wants a moral and spiritual awakening, awakening in America. Okay. I get that. America does need a moral and spiritual awakening. I'm with you there. But how in the hell does Oprah's spiritual advisor get on the stage um, and and talk about presidential issues? Um, This is, in my opinion, comical. Um, So, but you know what? She met the criteria. So I have to tip a hat to her. And she got in fair and square. So we'll see how she does. But she's definitely the one that is most out of sorts of all of them on this list. And then the final person, we're going in alphabetic order, Andrew Yang. And I talked about him before. Um, He's an entrepreneur, which I like. Um, Big on universal basic income. That's his defining issue. That's a big part of his brand image, which I don't like, but I understand it. Um, He wants to lower the voting age, which I love. I think that's a great thing. I think people that are 16 years old or older should be able to vote. If you pay taxes in this country, particularly if you pay income tax, which 16-year-olds do, they're either paying it as income or they're paying it as a payroll tax, you should be able to vote. I mean, we we fought against taxation without representation, right? Um, 16-year-olds drive cars. They pay gas tax. They pay registration fees. Um, I I like the idea of lowering the voting age. Uh, And I know there's some people that hate that idea, um, but I I think that's good. Andrew Yang is really big on ranked choice voting, which I love, 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 love. I love that policy. That's where when you go into the ballot box and let's just say there are, we'll use the 2000 election as the example. That was George Bush and it was um, uh, um, Al Gore. So it was George W. Bush and Al Gore in 2000 and there were some progressives that what they did is they voted, they wanted to vote for, um, 
who was the guy? Ralph Nader, um, you know, the, the consumer advocate and other progressive. They wanted to vote for him, but they thought voting for Ralph Nader was a wasted vote. So instead, they voted for Al Gore. That didn't work out as well as they'd like. Some people voted for Nader and then Al Gore barely lost Florida and they blame Nader, which I think is crazy. And that Nader wasn't the problem. Um, what what ranked choice voting basically does is rather than picking the lesser of evils, you can take in that election, you can put your number one candidate as number one and your number two candidate is two. You can put the person you like the least at the bottom of the list. So let's just say you were a progressive. You can make... Um, you could make Ralph Nader number one, Al Gore number two, and George W. Bush dead last. And so then your vote would go to Ralph Nader. If Ralph Nader didn't win all those number one votes, then your vote would go down to your number two candidate. And so it's this algorithm that used through this rank choice voting of your stack ranking, you actually are encouraged to vote for who you want rather than voting against the bad guy. Um, I remember I said this in the beginning of the podcast, I believe, and this is my opinion, I believe I should vote for the person that is most aligned with my own political principles, regardless if they have a chance to win or not. Because I know my vote's not going to break a tie. It never will. So I may as well not compromise my values, not compromise my principles, and vote for who I like and who I believe in. This ranked choice voting takes away that whole lesser of evils nonsense because people say you have to vote for the lesser of evils. And I always say, if you vote for the lesser of evils, you're voting for evil. Why vote for evil? <laughs> um, but it, with ranked choice voting, you could put your number one candidate at the top and the, the, the truly evil candidate, however your political alignment is, you can make them dead last in that stack ranking. And the other beauty is it avoids um, runoff elections. So it saves money too, which is another bonus. And there's a number of cities that are doing ranked choice voting. So Andrew Yang's big on that. He's also big on reducing the mass incarceration state. We, we talked about that at the beginning of the podcast. I love that idea. We have way the heck too many people in prison. It's nuts. Um, so figuring out ways to is to encourage um, people to get on their own feet, live good lives, rather than th the, this mentality of just throwing them in jail and throwing away the key. Um, so he's looking for a more rehabilitative uh, process and breaking down a lot of the war on drugs. I, I love hearing that. Um, he's big on the DREAM Act, which I like. The DREAM Act people, these are kids that um, their parents illegally immigrated, um, but they were born in America. Um, I think that's what it was. Or were they... Born in, yeah, maybe they were just born in a foreign country and they came to the United States and they've lived here their whole lives. I think that's what it is. Um, the DREAM Act basically provides a pathway to citizenship for them, which I think is good. I think we should be encouraging more legal immigration. If we did that, there would be, by default, less illegals. Um, and so the DREAM Act, to me, is a good step in that direction. He supports that. He even supports paying college athletes. <laughs> and it's great. If you go on his website um, under policy, he has got this huge list. There's got to be 50 or so items. These are all policy positions he's taken on a, a long list of issues. And no other political candidate has the balls to do this. He's willing to put himself out there he wants to be braver, which I talk about all the time in this podcast. Most of the other political candidates are kind of, you know, well, I support universal health care and I support, you know, just really 
obvious things that you would expect from a Democratic candidate. They don't want to take hard stands on difficult issues because they know the minute they do that, they create um, proponents and opponents. You know, they create lovers and haters, depending on where you plant that flag. Yang is willing to plant the flag. And I love that about him. And I love the fact that he's a business person because when they start talking about issues like regulations, like raising the minimum wage, all of those kinds of topics, as a business owner, he understands the other side of that. He's lived it. And so he has a better sensibility on how to implement those policies. I think that's important. Um, So again, Yang is a guy that Universal basic income, I have really serious problems with, but I like him as a person. I like Buttigieg as a person. Biden is a guy I'd love to go have a beer with. Probably one of the, would be a really fun time. Um, But I really respect Buttigieg and Yang because they're kind of a bit of outsiders. They're thoughtful. They're smart. Um, They think out of the box. They think differently. They're more innovative, particularly Yang. Um, I think that's the whole entrepreneur Silicon Valley angle to him. Um, and those are guys that I'll be straight. You know, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not going to vote for any of these Democratic candidates. Um, but I, um, I'm rooting for those guys. I'm rooting for Buttigieg and I'm rooting for Yang because I think they bring something to the table that's special. And, um, and I think it would be a very healthy part of the conversation to hear more from them and see what kind of impact they, they're going to make. So um, what am I, again, what am I interested in seeing? The, um, I want to see what, the number one thing is what impact can they make from a branding perspective? How will they be remembered? They're only going to have like six, seven, eight minutes of time. So what are those, those um, issues that you know they stand for? What are the things that uniquely separate them? What are the things that make them less vanilla? What are the things that make them special? Those are the things I want to really see, especially from the lower tier candidates. How can they define themselves and separate themselves? Who's most likable? Who's the guy that you want to have over for dinner, for a cup of coffee, go out, have a beer with? It's that likability that is probably even more important than the bullet points on the resume, the bullet points on the policy list, because that's how people vote. Maybe that's not how you vote. Maybe that's not how I vote. But a lot of other people say, I like that guy. I'm voting for him. So that likability factor is important. And then the opposite is true. If people on that stage say things that are not likable, then they're going to have problems. Now, I will say President Trump completely blew this model up last time. Um, He said things that were vile and awful on that debate stage, and he won. Now, um, are Democrats going to follow that Trump example? That'll be interesting to see in this debate. Will we see that Trump Trumpian influence in the debate where they're going to be willing to be more crass, more, how should I say, loose cannonish on some of these issues in order to separate themselves? Um, we might see some of that, but of course, it'll come from a very different place than Trump. Um, but we may see that, I think, from some of the progressive candidates, especially as they Excuse me, as as they go about attacking the rich and attacking corporations. So we'll see. Um, I'm, of course, I'm always looking for the gaffes. The gaffes are fun. Will there be a gaff? There usually always is. There's at least one. Um, someone will make a mistake. That'll be good. I'm hoping some of the lower tiered candidates catch fire. And then what about the, the, um, the Republican debates? Are there going to be GOP debates? I, I want to find that out. We're not going to find that out tonight, but that's what I'm wondering. Now, 
who's running in the Republican candidate, uh, the Republican nomination. It's Trump. But then there's Bill Weld. I've talked about Bill Weld on this podcast. I like Bill Weld. Probably of all the announced candidates, these these 21 that I went through just now and Trump and Bill Weld, if I had to look at them all, Bill Weld would be the one I vote for. Um, He's not perfect in my mind, but he's largely aligned with me. He's definitely more socially tolerant and more fiscally conservative, fiscally responsible. I like that in him. Um, I think Bill Weld could rip Trump a new one on that stage, and I would love to see it because Weld is smart, um, sharp as a tack, and would be able to run policy positions in circles around Trump and would be able to do it in a style that's fun and witty and um, and clever. Um, but I don't think we're going to get that chance. I really don't, because I think Trump will avoid it. The Republican establishment, we're going to do everything they can to protect the president from any kind of a debate. And actually, I would expect the same thing of the Democratic Party if the shoes were reversed. Um, if it was an incumbent Democratic presidential candidate, there probably wouldn't be uh, a debate process for the nom- for the primary nomination. So we'll see what the Republicans do. Um, but the, the, the other interesting person I'm paying attention to when it comes to the presidential race is Justin Amash. And I really, really, really like Justin Amash. I like him more than Bill Weld. Now, Amash, you know, is the congressman from Michigan, a Republican, but a a, a big supporter of the Constitution, of liberty, um, free markets. Many call him a libertarian. Um, and he is the first and hopefully not the only Republican that has come out supporting um, the impeachment process of, of Don Tr- Donald Trump. Uh, that took an incredible amount of bravery, huge guts, but he stuck to his principles. Remember I said, that's what I liked about Bernie. He sticks to his principles. Um, Justin Amash does the same, and I love that. And just in this case, Justin Amash's principles are very much aligned with my own. Some are saying that he may jump in the race as a Republican. Many others are saying he's going to jump in the race as a third-party candidate for the Libertarian Party. Now, the Libertarian Party, they typically don't have this long nomination process. They have a convention. I think last time it was in May of the election year. So following that same pattern, their nominating convention would be in May of 2020. Um, And there's like a little bit of a run up to that for the nomination process, but nothing like the Republicans and Democrats. So if Amash jumps in as a Democrat or as a libertarian, that won't happen until next year. Um, If he jumps in as a Republican, it could happen this year. But really, the odds are he won't jump in at all. He's just going to defend his congressional seat and he's going to have to fight hard to defend it because the minute he came out um, against Trump, all the Trump people are just are just piling on and people have come out that are running against him um, in the 2020 election cycle. So he'll have a battle on his hands and really he should stick to that. But I'm interested to see what happens with him. Um, Oh, well, so that's that's it on the Democratic presidential candidate race. I got a few other things I want to get into the good, the bad and the ugly, which so a couple of quick hitting uh, thoughts on other topics. But I want to say this, if I'm always looking for guests, you know, we just had Jessica Johnson here on the John Riley Project yesterday talking about Hidden San Diego and her book, um, Abandoned San Diego. That was amazing. She was talking about the story when she was in the Whaley House in Old Town 
as a seven-year-old and she saw a ghost. And I, I, she was being real. I believed every word she said. Um, and there's been other sightings of ghosts in that house. Um, she talked about these hidden caves that are underneath the cliffs at Sunset Cliffs. Um, a, uh, they're talking about hidden waterfalls and gold mines that are here in the city of Poway. Just incredible conversation. I really um, would ask you to go and check, check out that last episode. Um, but what I'm really trying to say here now is I'm always interested in having new guests. So if you'd like to recommend a guest, if you would like to be a guest, reach out to me on social media. Um, John Riley Poway is my handle on Twitter and on Facebook. You, um, excuse me, on Twitter and on Instagram. And on Facebook, it's John Riley Project. You'll see me out there. So reach out to me and let me know if you know of a guest that should be on the on the program. Okay. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right. The good, I got a couple of them. The good, the interfaith event I talked about earlier, um, where all the, we had the seven, or was it eight religions here in, in, in Poway? And the, the common thread that all these religions shared was beautiful. We are so much more alike than we are different. And people need to realize that. And the more we understand that, the more we can break down hate. And I think that's important. So that was a really good event uh, with the interfaith uh, group and their religion and ecology event that I attended. Loving the fact that um, Robert Mueller is going to testify in front of Congress. Uh, that was just announced yesterday. Uh, that's going to happen in July. Loving that. I think we have a lot more to hear from him. And I'm hoping he can be candid. You could tell he's trying to stay in his lane with his Mueller report. But I'm hoping we're, the Congress is going to be able to get more from him. Um, love in the city of Baltimore and the love that they shared for Manny Machado. Um, of course, the Padres are in Baltimore. They have a, they played yesterday and they won 8-3. They're playing today. In fact, the game's going right now. I don't know what the score is. But when Manny Machado came up to bat in his first at-bat yesterday, it would have been very easy for the fans to boo him because he left Baltimore. You know, it's, it's like the, the ex-girlfriend sort of thing. But instead, they stood up and they gave him a huge standing ovation and they loved him. And I thought that was really, really special, very classy of Baltimore to do that because they understood the economics of the situation. They understood the owners, but they had deep love and appreciation for Manny Machado and they let him know. And I, I just it was moving when I saw that happen yesterday. So bravo to Baltimore. And then here in Poway, they're restarting. The project on Espola Road to bury the lines, you know, the electrical lines, the cable lines, and thank goodness. And they're doing it during summer vacation, so less disruption to the drive up to Poway High. Um, so I'm happy that's kind of getting restarted. That's a project that, you know, they started it. They had problems with the contractor. They, the city fired the contractor. Now I'm assuming they're with a new contractor. I don't know the details, but I saw in the uh, news.com that they've, they're going to start this like in the next week or so. So wonderful. In the bad. Okay. This is, again, this is part of my be braver. This is I got to take positions on difficult topics. And I know I'm going to upset some people. Reparations. <laughs> so we're seeing this, this kind of pops up every once in a while where some people think that America, the federal government needs to make financial payments to black people because of all the injustices that they're um, suffering from today and that their ancestors had suffered from all the way back to slavery and beyond. And that has set them back economically. And we need to make reparation. We need to make them financially whole and we need to give them money. 
I understand that logic. But this seems to be well, – first of all, I object to it. Let me just say right now, I, I, it, you can't – when you do this, you're basically – remember I said when you give money to someone, you got to take it from someone else. So if you're giving money to someone that you think deserves it, okay, fine, but you have to take it from someone that's completely innocent, someone that maybe didn't even – family didn't even live in America before slavery, someone that maybe – was here during the period of slavery, but fought on the, in the Civil War against it. Um, how can you penalize? And then there's some, of course, there's some people that have ancestors that were slave owners um, or that supported racist policies. But why would you penalize people today for the sins of their father? To me, that's not right. It's not right at all. Um, now, there are things that we need to do in society to improve our education system, to address criminal justice, which I just talked about numerous times in this podcast. Um, There are things that we can do in the economy to provide um, better opportunity, to provide equality under the law so one group isn't discriminated against or suffering from institutional racism. We should address those head on. But we shouldn't penalize innocent people to reward other people. I think that's wrong. Um, And in many cases, how do you decide who gets the reparation? Like, first of all, would you give reparations to the Obama family? Some people say you would. Other people say they're fabulously rich. Why would you give them a reparation? And then on top of it, President Obama is half black and half white. So does he get a 50% share? Do his children get a 75% share? I mean, how do you do this math? Um, it, it opens up just a lot of kind of ugly issues on how you're going to resolve this. I really think ultimately that I don't think this would ever pass in America. I also think that everyone knows that it won't pass, but it's continuously brought up from time to time, particularly during these election cycles, to basically fire up certain progressives, to fire up a black community, to support certain candidates, and to poke at the people on the other side and to get them angry and get them fired up. And then people can say, yes, see, look at those people. They're evil racists. And then they'll create that dynamic, that battle. To me, this is a divisive issue meant to divide America. That's why I talk about Kamala Harris. She's a prosecutor. That's something that will divide us. We need presidents. We need political candidates that bring us together. Kind of like that interfaith event where we talk about seeing how we're so much more alike. We should be looking for common ground, common values, rather than always trying to split and divide and separate. So the reparations topic, in my opinion, does that. And it gets messy when you start to try to figure out who gets what. I mean, there are some blacks that are here in America that whose families never suffered from uh, slavery uh, because they emigrated from other parts of the world. They weren't part of the African slave trade. Um, and there's all, so many different exceptions. So how do you manage it logistically? Um, but really, f- from a principal perspective, penalizing innocent people, penalizing people for the sins of their fathers is morally wrong. And I think we need to address some of the issues of racism in our society, but there are other ways we can do it. And we should engage in those discussions. Um, but then the other crazy thing is, well, actually, two more points on reparations. One is... If we go back in time enough, every single one of us 
can point to cases where our ancestors were oppressed, were persecuted, were uh, victims of violence, suffered discrimination. And at some level, we can all make a justification for reparations. So then what? So then who gets more reparations and who qualifies and who doesn't? This goes back to the whole um, Dave Rubin, Ben Shapiro sort of a hierarchy of um, victimhood, you know, and which group is more oppressed and which one can get more shared. This is, again, the identity politics run amok. So I just have a real fundamental problem with this notion of reparations. And now Elizabeth Warren, my, I told you, my least favorite candidate in the race, is now saying we need to give reparations to gay people. And I'm like, oh, my God. So we need to give equal rights to gay people. That's what we need to do. Um, we need to be tolerant of their lifestyle. We need to let them live and let live. That's what we need to do for gay people. Give them the same rights as everybody else, but not reparations. So then who do you penalize? And I guess if someone is, I don't even want to go down. It'll just get ugly. But um, reparations, I have that in the bag calm. I think it's just an awful policy. Um, and the other next awful one is this notion, this came out in the news, it was either day before yesterday or so, where there's a group of some rich people that wrote a letter and they all said, please tax us more. We want to be taxed more. And immediately, a lot of progressives or more liberally minded folks, leftists are saying, see, there are, there are rich people that want to be taxed more. This is what we need to do. We need to raise taxes on the rich. And I'm looking at that. And I'm going, oh, my goodness, this is nonsense. Okay, first of all, if you look at this issue, they, there's number one, it's only 18 people, 18 um, that are saying this, that say, please raise taxes on me. Number two is, is that they don't want their own taxes raised. They want other people's taxes raised because if they just wanted their own taxes raised, they would just write a check. You know, they would say, OK, I owe this much, then I'll pay this much more. And then they're, they could, if they feel guilt, they feel like they need to pay a, a greater share, then write a check. OK, but what they are doing instead is they're saying we need to raise the rate so all these other people pay more. And then I'll go along with the program. Well, come on. I mean, if, if you believe in this, then then step up and write a check. So to me, this is just nonsense. It's a lot of virtue signaling, in my opinion. And then it's great fodder for those that want to raise taxes on other people because they say, ah, look at that. See, um, these people want to see uh, taxes go up on rich people. Um, so to me, it's it's interesting. It's this notion of self-interest and altruism. To me, this is the virtue signaling of altruism. But in reality, these people are really trying to pursue their own self-interest because they're going to take advantage of every tax break, every tax loophole, every tax deduction that's available to them. They will. Um, there might be a few exceptions, and they are not going to just hand over an extra million bucks, an extra 100,000 bucks just because they feel like it. Um, if they, Because if they did, if they did believe that, they would already be doing it. Um, but what ultimately what this is, it's virtue signaling, um, and they ultimately want other people to pay more taxes, and they want to make themselves look good in the process of doing it. And I, I just think it's really bad. Um, the ugly case, okay, um, oh, this one's awful. Um, the border crisis here um, is insane. What's going on with families being separated, children in cages, people not being treated properly. This is the whole 
um, alt-right Trump policy on steroids going down a dark, dark path. And um, I am really, really upset by this. Um, And in my opinion, what we're doing, it's a crime against humanity. Some people have likened it to concentration camps. And they've said, uh, excuse me, they said, these aren't concentration camps. How can they be concentration camps? That's where the, the Nazis kept the Jews. Well, you know what? These are people that are locked up against their will and they are being held um, and, and they're not being um, you know, presented for trial. It's not like they have habeas corpus rights. You know, usually if you're arrested, you can pay bail and be released. There's none of that. You're just put in a cage and then families are separated. It's crazy. Um, this is what um, FDR did uh, with the Japanese in the 1940s. They put them in, in, in internment camps. Uh, George Takai from uh, Star Trek fame, Mr. Sulu, he was in two of those internment camps. This is wrong. This is morally evil what is going on. Keep in mind that this goes completely against the principles this nation was founded upon. Again, I talk about this podcast is about our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What does that mean? That means we all have those rights and they're inalienable, which means they can't be taken away. In that preamble to the Constitution, it says all men are created equal. That means it's not just inalienable rights for American citizens. It's for everybody. So that means that they have a right to their own life. They have liberty. So we should be thinking not in terms of locking these people up, We should be saying, how do we let them come to America legally? So we should be providing, rather than putting them in cages, we should, and deploying military to the border, we should be deploying government bureaucrats to the border with forms and say, fill these forms out and you can come in legally. And then you can work through the process, be a contributing member of society. Look at, I mean, again, I talk about this. My, I'm studying my own ancestry. My family came to the United States in the late 1800s. Uh, mostly from Ireland, a couple of them from England. And, you know, they came here to better their life. But back in the late 1800s, I'm, I'm of Irish ancestry. The Irish were poor. They were, you know, whole potato famine. They were, they were hungry. They were starving. They were poor. N- not unlike these, these immigrants coming up from Central America and from Mexico. Um, but they came here because they just wanted to improve their life. They wanted to be able to have opportunity and to live freely. Um, and we welcome them. And America is so much better off. And, you know, during the 19th century and in the 1800s, America had its problems. But America was still, again, as President Reagan talked about, the shining city on the hill. People from all over the world flocked here in the millions to come to America to build a better life. And we are so much better off as a, as a country, as a society, as a culture for it. Um, it's what makes America great, in my opinion. Um, and now we are completely going against that entire thought because there are these people, again, all these issues today are so interwoven. They, they see these people that look different and they immediately don't trust them, don't want them. Um, it's like, like the interfaith event that I went to. I went to that event. There are people there that look different than me. But you know what? They were just as human as you or I. They were, they were real people, parents with careers, with family, with homes, living in a community, just like you, just like me. 
They might have worshipped a little bit differently. They might have worn different clothes. Their skin color might have been a little bit different. But ultimately, they were just as human as you or I. This is the problem that exists. There are people in this nation that see these people coming from Mexico and say that they are from shithole countries or they are um, not – they're, you know, they are not deserving of these American rights. I think that's wrong. There are other people who will say, and I say there is some justification to this, and they'll say, we don't want to come in here because we can't afford them and the welfare state and all this. There's, there's a legitimacy to that. But if they come in legally, then they're going to be a contributing member of society. They won't be working under the table. They'll be actually paying taxes that will fund a lot of these, um, you know, will be funding health care and, and um education and everything else. But if you also, if you have a problem with the welfare state, well, that's not just, why look at it only from the perspective of the incoming immigrants? That affects everybody. So if you have a problem with the welfare state, and I do to a large degree, we should be talking about that comprehensively, not just as it applies to these people coming up from Central America that happen to look different. So the whole thing is just crazy. And then the other part of it is that's um, inconsistent with our founding values is, um, you know, the, the, the Statue of Liberty. Again, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? The Statue of Liberty there on, on Ellis – no, it's not on Ellis Island. What's the name of the island in New York Harbor? can't remember. But, um, you know, it's give us your poor and huddled masses. That's the, the plaque that's on the Statue of Liberty. These people coming up from Central America – from Mexico, those are the poor and huddled masses. That's exactly who they are. And, and interestingly, many of them are coming to America to escape the violence that's occurring in their nations, violence largely as a result of our criminal justice system with the war on drugs that encourages gang warfare to bring drugs in um, underground through black market channels. And the vigilantism of managing that process in those foreign nations has created all that violence. And these people are escaping it. And ultimately, it's because of our criminal justice system, which is unjust. So see how this all, it's amazing how all these things tie together. And so many of these things are wrong. This is clearly in the ugly column. And um, the other two other angles to this, one is, is that San Diego Mayor um, uh, Kevin Faulkner was in Washington, D.C., and he got a chance opportunity to meet with President Trump. And I guess it was like 20 minutes. And there's a picture of him standing next to Trump um, in the Oval Office behind the the desk. What's the name of the desk? Ah, can't remember it. I should have. Uh, they talked about it in that Nicolas Cage movie. Um where they stole the Declaration of Independence. I should know that. Um, uh, not the Heritage Desk. I can't remember the name. Anyways, Faulkner is standing there next to Trump, and it's like the photo op, and it's so awkward. I mean, Faulkner, of course, he's a Republican, but he's much more about building bridges, not walls. Um, he's and So when he met with President Trump, he talked about we need to have cooperation with Mexico. Our trade relationship is so important in the San Diego area, you know, and, and encouraging that free flow of goods, that free flow of labor between the two countries. Um, and then what, what did President Trump say when they issued a statement? They said, oh, yeah, Mayor Faulkner really supports the wall in San Diego. President Trump lied <laughs> and he used Mayor Faulkner as a pawn 
uh, just so he could say he had the mayor of San Diego in um, the White House because he's used San Diego as an example because there is a wall. And I went to Friendship Park. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's an amazing place. I should do a, I, I did some early recording there right before I started this podcast. I'm going to do a podcast about Friendship Park at some point. We have the wall in San Diego. And uh, the wall, again, so many problems with that. Um, at any rate, um, I put this in the ugly column because it's all part of this ridiculous border crisis. The other part that bugs the heck out of me is when you talk to some people that are Trump supporters, if, if you oppose any of this, if you oppose the family separation, you oppose the children in cages, you oppose, you oppose the um, – there was just a picture um, just in the news like in the last 24 hours of a father and a child that drowned in the Rio Grande River. If you oppose this, you oppose the wall, then you must be for open borders. I mean, come on. That's not what we're saying. I, I'm for legal immigration. I'm for making the process less regulated, making it so people can come to America faster, cheaper, easier, but legally. And if they come legally, then, then the illegal situation will relax. Um, but you hear this, like, if you're not for what they want, then you must be the extreme opposite version of it. And that kind of political debate is dishonest and ultimately just... Um, it's just wrong and it's ugly. It's, that's why it's in the ugly column. There's two more that I'm going to just mention briefly in the ugly column. One is the, the mess that's going on with, with Iran right now. And um, thankfully, we didn't engage militarily, but you know, tensions are heating up. Keep an eye on this. Keep an eye to see if we get manipulated to get into another war. We've learned that wars in the Middle East, I've talked about it when I talked about Joe Biden. Wars in the Middle East have been disasters for America. Massive loss of life, huge amount of money being spent, not just massive loss of life of Americans, but of, of innocent families in those nations. We've seen total violations of our constitutional rights where American citizens have been drone bombed and they have um, lost their uh, rights to due process. Um, we, we've seen so many terrible things as a result of all these Middle East wars. And and we ended up making the problem far worse than it was prior to 9-11. So um, you're seeing a lot of this um, this rhetoric, even some military action beginning to heat up. Keep an eye on it. Um, we don't need to be suckered into another war, especially for someone that's not directly a threat to the United States. Iran is not a threat. They're, they're sure they're, they're engaged in terrorist activities. Um, sure, they're a problem. They need to be managed. We need to have relationships. But we don't need to be starting another Iraq war in the Middle East because um, that it's you don't win those. There's there's no winner in those. Those uh, I mean, who won the Iraq war? Nobody. Well, the military industrial complex was the winner. And if we have a war with Iran, they will be the winner again. So keep an eye on that. I have this in the ugly column. And then the last one, oh my God. Uh, okay, our congressman here in my district is Scott Peters. Scott Peters is a good guy. Um, Scott Peters is, I don't agree with him on a lot of issues. He's a middle of the road, kind of centrist Democrat. Um, I've seen him in some of our local debates. He's a nice man. Um, and I believe he's doing what he believes is the right thing to do, even if I don't necessarily agree with him on a lot of issues. 
But our Congress, a congressional district next door is where Duncan Hunter is from. Duncan Hunter Jr. This man is a disgrace. Um, he's been illegally using campaign dollars. Um, we're finding out that he was using it for illicit activities, all kinds of things. This man needs to resign. Duncan Hunter Jr., you need to resign um, and be replaced. And I know that East County is a, is a big red congressional seat. Find another Republican candidate out there. I urge you. Um, there are a lot of others that would do a very good job. But this man is um, not acting in your best interest. He is not a representative of the people. Um, and he's getting kicked off of committees. So he will have less influence to, to serve you and to represent you. Um, this man needs to be removed. And what we're seeing come out in the news about him is shameful. And we've gone through similar things, although in different categories, with like Duke Cunningham. That, that happened here in San Diego. So I don't know what it is. It's like when some people get into positions of power, they lose their common sense. We saw that with John Collins of Poway Unified, our former superintendent. Uh, we saw that with Duncan, I mean, with uh, Duke Cunningham. We saw that with um, Filner. Uh, Bob Filner, the former mayor of San Diego, that guy, another disgrace. Um, so Republicans, Democrats, it's it's bipartisan. Um, some of these people are, they should be removed from office. Duncan Hunter Jr., your father, Duncan Hunter Sr., very well-respected man, a big military guy, um, had the huge, the huge respect from his people, from his supporters. But in my opinion, um, Congressman Hunter, Duncan Hunter Jr., um, you're doing a disgrace to your family name. Um, and I think you need to resign. And I have you in the ugly category. Okay, so I am going on and on and on. And people say to me, how can you talk this long? I sometimes wonder. I don't know how long I've gone, but I bet you I've gone probably about an hour and a half. That's my guess. Um, I'll find out when I put this podcast through post-production. So, okay, let's wrap it up with a couple of quick hits here at the very end. Number one, um, if you like what you heard, if you've made it this far in the podcast, and if you've done that, I I applaud you. Bravo. You have tremendous stamina. (laughs) Um, Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. If you want to help, here's what you can do. Listen or watch every one of the episodes. This is episode number 59. So there's you know, over 50 more episodes you can watch or listen to. Share it with a friend. I'll share it on social media. Um, tell a friend that you maybe you're at a, a dinner party. Maybe you're at your kid's uh, uh, ball game. Um, let them know about the John Riley Project. We talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, we talk about politics, culture. Um, we, are, we talk about happiness and pursuit of happiness. We talk about sports, lots of different things. We um, interweave some of our local issues here in Poway, Rancho Bernardo, but also in San Diego. And we also talk about national issues, excuse me, from time to time. Um, so share this with a friend. Um, if they want to hear long form conversation with interesting guests or just listen to me pontificate on the issues, uh, showcasing my ability to be braver. Um, I welcome you to do that. Um, if you are uh, watching on YouTube, please subscribe. We're trying to build our subscription list up. We're up to 45 now. I'm trying to get to 100. So uh, if you could help me get that that number into the triple digits. Um, if you um, f- listen on iTunes, um, you can leave a rating, a five-star rating. You can write a sentence or a paragraph talking about this. That's really helpful. 
that builds credibility, helps us get more listeners so we can grow the audience. So any of those things you can do would be great. And of course, you can always follow us on social media. That's always appreciated. So let me close off with a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. And I've I've used Eleanor Roosevelt, I think, at least once in my social media campaign where I will share inspirational quotes. But this is a good one. And it's consistent with what we've been talking about. What has happened to us in this country? If we study our own history, we find that we have always been ready to receive the unfortunate from other countries. And though this may seem a generous gesture on our part, we have profited a thousandfold by what they have brought us. And that is from Eleanor Roosevelt, the greatest first lady of our time, a woman of tremendous stature, a woman that arguably could have been president or should have been president. Um, But she's right. Um, Immigrants have made this country better. Immigrants are what makes America great. Um, Immigrants is what makes every day in this United States special. Um, It adds so much variety to life and immigrants when you see an immigrant come here on their own free will because this is the country they wanted to grow up in, because this is a country where they wanted to seek out their prosperity for themselves and their family, that they understand our founding values, our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Sometimes immigrants know that better than American citizens do because they get it. They've seen America from afar. They understood the oppression they had in their own country, and they came here for that opportunity for freedom. And I love that. And we need more of that. And Eleanor Roosevelt is 100% right. They have profited, excuse me, we have profited a thousandfold by what they have brought us. So that concludes the John Riley Project. This is episode number 59. Oh my goodness. Um, Let me get this uploaded on the internet before the Democratic debate starts later this evening. We'll see you later, folks. (music) Bye-bye.